Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. All right. Well, let's get to it. Uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to start in Matthew chapter 28. Let me mention that next weekend... We will be having our missions weekend. Uh, we do this annually. We are really excited about this, this weekend. Uh, our speaker, our guest speaker will be Dr. George Murray. He is the Chancellor of Columbia International University, which is a, a Bible school in Columbia, South Carolina, which has a, a wonderful reputation for sending young people to the, to the mission field. Our very own Ron Mullins is a board member at that university and um, a couple of folks have come through the church, young people, David Blanchard, who is a, uh, a missionary with uh, a Life Shape Foundation in Brazil, is a graduate of Columbia International University. But Dr. Murray will be with us Friday night, Saturday, and Sunday, and so I think if we have another slide, it'll show you kind of the events. This Wednesday, in fact, we're going to gather just as a church and pray here in the sanctuary for missions. The youth will be joining us, and so I encourage you to come to that. And then this Friday night, we're going to have a service and dessert, and Dr. Murray will be speaking to us. Then Saturday morning, there will be a women's brunch, and then Saturday evening, Jim Money will be cooking barbecue. Jim Money and his merry band of cooks will be uh, cooking for us, and we'll have another um, talk from Dr. Murray, and then he'll be preaching on Sunday morning here next Sunday. And then he'll be speaking to our youth on Sunday evening. I'd love for you to come to as much of that as you can. And we do need you, though, to sign up for especially the Saturday night because Jim uh, and his, his cooks need to know uh, how much to cook. And so we'd love for you to do that. Also, on Friday night, um, we need some help with desserts, I think. And so if you um, have, like, um, eggs and flour and beaters and, like, whatever at your home and you can cook, um, we would love for you to maybe volunteer to make some desserts for us. So I'm looking at you. I know you're a good cook. Amy Ward, you're a wonderful cook. No pressure. No pressure. But... Um, but we need you to sign up and talk to Elaine Sochet. There's a table right outside these doors at the end of the service. We'd love for you to sign up and also maybe talk to Elaine about helping with desserts. I'd love for you to come. I'm asking you to come to that, okay? I'm just, I want you to come. Doctor, I spoke to him on the phone this week. He's just, it's going to be a great time of us thinking about our responsibilities at church for the nations. And so come to that. Um, Praise God. And as Will mentioned, um, I'd love for you to come this Wednesday to the steps of the courthouse. I'll be there Wednesday. I'd love for you to join me to pray. Um, you know, does, is anything tangible going to happen if a bunch of Christians show up at the courthouse? Well, maybe not in that moment as we pray for the ending of abortion in our culture. But it might cause more people to pay attention. It might cause uh, somebody that watches the news coverage of it to have their hearts pricked about this terrible thing. It might cause more Christians to be fervent about this. And so I'd love for you to come and, and join us on, uh, on Wednesday morning and then all next weekend for the missions conference. So, so praise God. All right, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read. And I'm going to pray a long pastoral prayer because prayers here are not transitions. Prayers here are when the people of God cry out to God. And there's lots for us to pray about this morning, okay? 
So let's pray. Martin Luther King holiday coming up. We're going to pray about racial reconciliation. Sanctity of life Sunday. What we're doing here is we open up God's word. Um, so let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we come to you now as uh, humble, pardoned rebels. Probably most people in this room know you as their king and savior and father. But certainly with a crowd this size, there are people in this room who very likely have not trusted in you for life. They are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Lord, would you do what only you can do, and would you simultaneously encourage your people and give life to unbelievers in this room so that they could be your people as well, and they would turn from sin and turn in faith to Jesus. Lord, on this um, weekend when we are celebrating Martin Luther King, King's birthday and civil rights, we in one sense, praise you for the great progress in our nation. We are overjoyed, I am overjoyed, that just 40-some years after the civil rights movement, our country is in a place where they could elect an African-American president. I think that is a wonderful thing. But yet... This particular president, we, our hearts are broken by his stance and his views on the sanctity of life and children in the womb. Lord, we know that the scriptures tell us that you hold the king's heart in your hand like a, like a water course and you direct it wherever you will. As we thank you for our president and as we pray for the gospel to produce more reconciliation between races, between black folks and white folks and all ethnicities. Lord, would you rid our land of the scourge of abortion? Would you convict our president? And would you cause him to turn from his error and his way, his views on this matter, especially on this Sunday? And would you do the same for Supreme Court justices and senators and congressmen? And Lord, if there's anybody in this room that has participated in an abortion, whether male or female, and they have sensed turned from sin and trusted in Christ, Lord, would you let them know that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? And that he who is in Christ or she who is in Christ is a new creation. And that there is grace and life in Christ. And would you let them know that this is a place of healing and wholeness and acceptance for them? And God, would you embolden us as a congregation to be bold as we engage a culture of death and darkness? And now, as we open up your word, would you give us a beautiful picture of what it means to be a people that are ransomed and redeemed by Jesus, who are placed in your family, the church, 
and who are on mission together so that we might together proclaim the surpassing worth of Christ. Would you do these things, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, as we've mentioned in the last couple of weeks, we are in a little bit of an in-between time between our study of First Peter, which we finished before Christmas, and after, George, after Dr. Murray speaks to us, we'll start Genesis. We're going to look at the first 12 chapters of Genesis and go slow through that. But these past three Sundays, the first Sunday of January, last Sunday, and today, we're looking at and recalibrating our vision of ministry, our philosophy of ministry as a church. And we have been for the past five or six years, we've been a church for nine years, but in the past five or six years, we've, we've been driven by these three words, gospel, community, and mission. And I think those three words really help to encapsulate what the Christian life is all about and what the life of a local church should be all about. Proclaiming and believing and trusting and remembering the gospel that we are made God's people Not by our works, not because we're Americans, not because we're wise, not because we grew up in church, but because of his sovereign grace. He made us alive in Christ Jesus. That's the good news of the gospel. That no matter how far you are away or whether or not you're a relatively good person or an absolutely horrible person, there is hope for you because God makes his people alive through giving them the very thing that he requires of them and causing them to turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus. That's the gospel. And he doesn't leave them alone as individual Americans, but he puts them together in a family called the church and this great grand universal church of all people everywhere who have ever trusted in Christ finds its expression in local congregations like this one. So even though we are Cross Point Church, we are connected with all of the other churches of different denominations and preferences and stripes and styles and ethnicities all across the world. We are more connected to our brothers and sisters in Christ than we are to our blood relatives. Just this morning, I got a text message from Jeff Struker of Calvary Baptist Church saying that he was praying for us. And then Keith Cowart Uh, Another pastor friend of mine in the city of Christ Community Church got that text too. And he sent just a response to the text saying, Bless you, brothers, as you preach the gospel this morning. So know that we're not just on an island here. We're in a grand community. But we're in also a local community called the church, Cross Point Church. And we are living together in a community to, to serve one another and love one another. But not just to be a community for ourselves, but that brings us to the third word that we'll talk about today, which is that we are a community on a mission to proclaim the surpassing worth of Christ. Now, here's my plan today. I don't have any, you know, real deep theological points. In fact, I don't think I ever do. (laughs) Um, So, well, take take what you want from that. Today, I want us to, primarily, I'm going to read through about four passages of Scripture that give us a picture into the New Testament church that has been seized by the gospel, that are together in community, and that are on a mission to display the surpassing worth of Christ to an onlooking world. So more than any point or any doctrinal uh, bullet point, I I want us to have a a picture, a sense of what it means to be a people on a mission for Jesus. There's this French poet and aviator, 
during the World War II era. His name was Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. I know nothing about this man other than he was a pilot in World War II for the French resistance against Germany and that he was a poet. He may not have been a Christian. He might have been a complete scoundrel. So major caveats. But he did say something in one of his writings which I found tremendously inspirational years ago when we were planting this church. And I think it applies today. So, major caveats, if you Google this cat, and he was a bum, okay? And this isn't focused on what it means to be a Christian, but the sentiment in this quote, I think, is so helpful. He said that if you want to build a ship, don't drum up the men to gather the wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And that's what I want to do today. You know, there's times when we need to think about specific doctrinal points and we need to to mark it out, and that's good. But today, I want to read some scriptures from the New Testament, get a picture of the New Testament church on mission, and I want us to yearn for this beautiful picture of what it means to be a people seized by the gospel, loving one another ruggedly in community, and on mission together as ordinary people. For the surpassing worth of Christ. So let's read in Matthew 28. I'm going to read through four passages and then we'll we'll make a few applications and then be done. So Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. This is after Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Jesus has come back from the grave and has now appeared to... Hundreds of people, as we find later in Corinthians, and specifically to his disciples, and is now about ready to ascend to heaven, where he now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for his people, as Romans 8 tells us. And in Matthew 28, verse 16, in fact, this will be Dr. Murray's text next week, the last two verses here in Matthew 28. But starting in verse 16, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I find that incredibly encouraging and humbling. Okay, so just let's set the scene here. Jesus has, has ministered for three years, done all sorts of miracles. John says in his Gospels that D- Jesus, all the things that he taught and did, that if we were to write them down, there wouldn't be enough space in the world for the books to contain it. And now he has come back from the dead and is preparing to ascend to heaven. And there's still some people that are like, I don't know, I don't know. I mean, okay, maybe. I I find that strangely encouraging (laughs) because when I am such a dim-witted, slow-to-faith knucklehead, um, I, I find myself in, you know, Kind of decent company. But yet I also find it kind of humbling. Because friends, that tells me and it reminds me that seeing Jesus for who he truly is is completely grace. It is not the accumulation of empirical evidence. And I'm all for apologetics. And reasoning with, you know, I'm all for that. 
But friends, we need to know that at the end of the day, we are completely at the mercy of a sovereign God to give us eyes to see and a heart to believe in Jesus, who is, I mean, he has come back from the dead and is starting to levitate. And there are some people saying, ah, I don't know. We need God's grace. Verse 18, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And that word nations doesn't just mean political nations like all of the flags that are represented in the UN, all 200 or whatever it is. But that word nations in the original language that the New Testament was written in Greek would be better translated all ethnic groups, all people groups, of which there are thousands and thousands and thousands. And many have not been reached yet with the gospel. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So this is, this is what we call the Great Commission. So Jesus is speaking not just to the 11 disciples, but he is giving an authoritative statement as the risen king, the savior of his people, commissioning them, not just the 11 and the people that were listening to him at that time, but the church for centuries has understood this to be the Great Commission where Jesus sends his people. So to be a Christian, to believe in the risen king, is to be a servant of that king who has commissioned all of us to be part of this great purpose to go and preach and teach all peoples so that they would follow Jesus as well. So then let's flip to Acts chapter 2. We find a picture, a snapshot of the early church that is being seized with this gospel message and is being seized with this mission. And Peter gets up and he preaches the amazing sermon on the day of Pentecost. They thought that they were drunk, but really they were just filled with God's Spirit. And these 120 followers of Jesus on this day of Pentecost receive God's power from on high, the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 2, after Peter has preached this sermon and calls people to trust in Christ and the good news of the gospel and not themselves, then this is a picture of that early church and their life together in verse 42 of Acts 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. And what the apostles were teaching was not life tips or leadership lessons, but the apostles were teaching how the message of the Old Testament and the life of Christ is all pointing towards salvation in Christ. They were preaching, they were teaching the gospel that we are saved not by works or by morality or by ethnicity. We are saved not because we are ethnic children of Abraham or because we are circumcised or because we grew up in the Bible Belt South or because... Our dad was a deacon, but because of what Christ has done and our faith in him alone. And this is what they were teaching in the early church. So they devoted themselves to that gospel teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, 
And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So God was giving these apostles a special gifting of power to work signs and wonders to authenticate their ministry to an onlooking world. Although I think God still works miraculously, I think that these apostles were given a special grace, a special gifting, so that the preaching of the gospel would be accompanied by signs that would authenticate their authority to be the writers of the New Testament and the fathers of the early church as it spread throughout the Roman Empire. Verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And listen to verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together, And breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And then there's this sentence here at the end of verse 47. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So I want you to see this picture before we move on to another passage in 1 Thessalonians. That There's this picture of the New Testament church here after Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, where they sort of pushed all of their chips into the middle and they said, listen, the gospel saved us and now we are a people in community. And the way they lived together, they had this sort of rhythm where they would gather actually daily for like large group worship. We only do it on Sundays. But they would gather and then they would scatter throughout the week into each other's homes and they would break bread and they would serve one another and they would care for one another and they would invite unbelieving friends and family members to be, to be part of this and, and the regular rhythm of their life, gathering for corporate worship to hear the preaching of the word through one of the apostles and then the scattering and the relationships of living together and serving one another in their homes through meals through mutual care became a sort of corporate witness to an onlooking world that God used to be a display of the beauty of Jesus in an informal way and he caused it to bring thousands of people to to faith. Now, let's stop here. And I think that sometimes when we look back on the New Testament, especially in Acts, I think we can sort of, I'm prone to this, we can sort of over-romanticize the New Testament church. So don't think that these people were like wonderful Christians and that all of their little home fellowships were just free of friction and no awkwardness, right? We just have this picture like they're all sitting in this little circle singing kumbaya, you know? And there was just no friction. It was just wonderful. And everybody understood everything great. And there were no issues. Friends, that is not the case, right? I mean, just a couple chapters later in Acts chapter 6, we, we read about a dispute that arose in the early church where there were some Jewish widows who were, uh, were, were, were at odds with these pagan Greek widows. And so these early Jewish Christians form the beginning of the early church. And then all of these Gentiles are getting saved these Greek widows, and there was a dispute because the Greek new Christians were thinking that the apostles were treating the Jewish Christians' widows better than their widows. And so there was a church fight in Acts chapter 6, and they had to have a meeting to solve the dispute. Point is, Christians are jacked up, even like early Christians. 
many of whom saw the resurrected Jesus. And Christians were awkward, and Christians sinned against one another, but there was something here where there was this gospel community mission mentality in them where in the ruggedness of everyday life, where none of their living rooms were completely clean, right? Where, where, where they didn't, how did they do hospitality before Pinterest? How did they decorate their homes without HGTV? How did they do it? Oh my gosh. And how, how, how did, I mean, they actually invited people over and guess what? Their kids misbehaved. And there was still junk laying around and Captain Crunch ground into the carpet. And somehow or another, this rugged sort of commitment to the King Jesus and to each other and to outsiders so that they would become insiders became this, this sort of beautiful rugged mix of gospel community mission. The church gathered and the church scattered. And then let's go, let's zero down in on a little bit closer to what happens to a community when the gospel sees it, seizes it. Let's look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This is a letter now later on. Some years after this scene in Acts, the church is spreading throughout the Roman Empire. And ironically enough, it is spreading without the internet. It's spreading without American evangelistic events. Those things can be wonderful. But somehow or another, it was just spreading through local, everyday, ordinary, scrappy Christians living together, caring about the lost, inviting unbelievers into their fellowship, being an ordinary witness of Jesus in their spheres of influence. And so Paul is writing to a church. The primary thrust of the point of the letter to the Thessalonians is, is that they've heard the gospel from Paul. And Paul had to leave and go plant other churches before he could teach them more fully about the Christian life and future. And some of the people in their church in Thessalonica had since died after receiving the gospel and trusting in Christ. And they weren't quite sure what the afterlife was about. They were thinking their posture was is that Jesus could come back any time. In fact, that was their hope. And so they're wondering, oh no, What's going to happen to these people that have died? Are they missing out on Jesus' return? And, and Paul instructs them throughout First Thessalonians about Jesus' return and about how life is not just these 80 years, but it is with Christ forever and that there's this resurrection and that we are made to be eternal and that all people everywhere will live forever, forever either with Christ or separated from him in eternal condemnation forever where Jesus says in Mark 9 the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched and so, so what's on line here and us knowing the gospel and being a church that preaches the gospel is not just sort of better life for, for people here on earth but eternal reality either with Christ or separated from him forever and so Paul writes this verse 1 Paul, Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, 
constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just pause there and say that um, I'm just encouraged and, 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 and instructed as I read about Paul thanking God for these believers. And I think that's a wonderful sort of rhythm and pattern and thing to, a habit to get into as a Christian. We, we live in an age of cynicism and sarcasm, don't we? I mean, most of us grew up on Seinfeld, that type of humor. And we're just, I think the insecurity of our age and the, the internet has produced in us just sort of a, a rampant insecurity. And so like deep down inside, we're more apt to look at others, even, even, even other, other, un, other believers, and to sort of file away mild critiques in our mind about how they're not quite where they should be so we kind of make ourselves feel better. Am I the only one that does that? (laughs) Or is prone to that? Okay, I got one person that agrees with me. Yeah, thank you, Bill. And I think a wonderful habit to get into would just to just have this daily or weekly habit of looking at the people in your life and your church family and just thanking God for the evidences of grace that you see in them. One thing that we do as pastors, staff, elders, every time we meet is we spend a significant portion of our meeting just thinking about what are the wonderful things that we see in our church, in the lives of the people. And we just think about, hey, man, that guy, he's really, it seems like he's really just sort of digging his, 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 his feet into the gospel. And that couple over there, like they're reaching out. They're just inviting people over to their house, even though there might be Captain Crunch ground in their carpet. And even though their kids are, you know, you know not all the way they should. And we just, we just start dwelling on the good things that we see. Friends, that has a wonderfully softening power in your life. And it sort of stirs your affection for one another. So that when you're on Facebook and you see somebody else on some beautiful vacation and you're tempted to jealousy and see they're spending money on vacation and not giving to the Lord like they should. Then, then, then you sort of stirring up in your heart affection for that person and the grace that you see him starts to fight against our natural tendency to be sarcastic and cynical. Amen. All right. I will take your silence as conviction. And I didn't even, that wasn't even a point that I mean, need, needed to make. Verse 4. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So, how do you know you're a Christian, Paul is ultimately saying here? is not because 10 years ago you raised your hand on Thursday night of youth camp. Not merely because you were baptized, as important as that is. Not merely because your name is on the rolls of membership of a church or your granddaddy was a deacon and your mom played the piano or because you get a bulletin from some church or because you occasionally go there. You know that God has made you one of his people that he has chosen you because the gospel has some fruit-bearing aspect in your life and there is evidence of your salvation. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. No, no, come on, friends. Christians still fight against sin. 
Remember that I, I quote it all the time. William Arnaud, that British theologian in the 1800s, says that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the Christian is taking God's side against their dreaded sin, whereas the unconverted person or the person who thinks they're a Christian but really isn't continues to take their sin side against the dreaded God. So how do we know that we are his? Because our hearts are longing, even as we continue to fight for sin, to trust and serve him. And there is this power ever increasing to fight sin. The Holy Spirit has come into our hearts in full conviction. And we have changed and we are together now striving and struggling to take God's side against our sin. In verse 6, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that, listen to, here's the mission aspect of it now, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I don't know if I pronounced that right. But they, the way they were doing life, the way they were taking God's side against their sin became a sort of corporate witness to the region. Verse 8, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. Friends, I mean, this is so good, oh God, this is so good. This church is just being Christians together in community. Like they're not griping at each other and complaining about songs and coffee and stuff. And I can say that passionately because you guys don't. I'm not, I'm not, that's not like a, a, a pastoral sort of, you know, undercut. Like, yeah, I'm not getting on anybody there. I'm just, praise God that you guys don't complain about that stuff. Okay. All right. But they're like, they care about taking God's side against their sin and loving one another and their regular rhythm of life. It doesn't mention any great charismatic preacher or some wonderful program. The way these people lived together became a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. Verse 9 This is a beautiful sentence. This is a wonderful summary of what it means to be a Christian. For they themselves report concerning us what kind of reception we had among you. And listen to this. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Christian life is one of turning away from idols. And I'm not talking about statues of fat little guys painted gold. The Christian life is one of turning from idols. Idols of treasuring relationships more than Christ. Idols of treasuring career advancement more than Christ. Idols of treasuring cute little kids in monogrammed shirts more than Christ. Idols of cherishing interior decorating more than Christ. Idols of cherishing an 18-year-old boy in tight pants who can throw a football to come be on your team more than Christ. Idols. Idols of self-righteousness. Idols of wanting to make ourselves important. Idols 
John Calvin said that the human heart is an idle factory. We're like pumping it out, man. It's like an assembly line. Boom, boom, boom. Idols just coming out of our hearts. And what it means to be a Christian is to band together with a group of other people who are also pumping out idols and together kill our idols and turn in faith towards Jesus. And this becomes this distinct way of radical transformation in ordinary life becomes, friends, do you see this? It becomes a display of the surpassing worth of Christ. It becomes an aroma, a fragrance. And that's our last scripture, so let's go to it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. This beautiful passage. Read this, make a few observations, and we'll respond to Christ together. Paul writing out to another church who were full of jacked up people. Like, read 1 Corinthians. They're doing all sorts of crazy stuff. Crazy Christians. Whack jobs, nut jobs, freaks, selfish, weirdos. And the gospel came to them and seized them. And Paul doesn't write them off as some group of carnal knuckleheads. He writes them in grace. And he commends them for what's going good amongst them. And he instructs them boldly. And then in his second letter to them, he writes these beautiful words about what it means to be this fragrance of Christ. He says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. So he's writing to a group of people who in his first letter to them, he was chastising them for all sorts of crazy stuff. Like sacrifice, eating meat sacrificed to idols. For sexual immorality with prostitutes in the temple. For being selfish at the communion meal. For being pompous and arrogant because of their spiritual gifting. And to this motley crew of jacked up people, Paul writes in a second letter saying that God is leading you in triumphal procession. Like a, like a city that is going out to meet a conquering king who is coming back, bringing with him the spoils of his victory. And in this case, it's not gold and horses and cattle. It's new life and forgiveness and redemption. And Jesus has defeated the foe. And he's coming back now in triumphal procession. And we are going out to meet our king, now being dispatched on mission for Jesus. And we, just like the Corinthians, are jacked up people. But even us, through us, he spreads this aroma. Verse 15, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are being perishing, who are perishing. So there's two types of people in the world, those that God is drawing and those that are, that are rebelling against God and perishing in their sin. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Paul is saying here that this group of pardoned rebels, 
who are still fighting fiercely with their sin, who are still at times failing each other and their Lord, but are taking God's side against their sin, are the very means that God uses to be a witness, to be, as he describes it here, an aroma to an onlooking world. And to those that God is drawing, it's the scent of life. And to those who are perishing, it's the scent of death. And so we see here from these scriptures this beautiful picture. I want you to see this beautiful picture of regular, ordinary, struggling, rugged Christians who have committed to live together and be on mission for Jesus and his beauty and surpassing worth. Now, when you think about that word missions, I think sometimes instinctively we conjure up foreign missions, and we're going to talk a good bit next week with Dr. Murray about not just exclusively, but a good bit about foreign missions, about, about our responsibility as a local church to either go in fact, we have a team coming back from Haiti this evening from Cross Point to either go temporarily or to go long term like a young couple from our church is going to Central Asia here, Lord willing, at, towards the end of this year to be full-time missionaries or to be people that pray and help equip. We'll talk very clearly about that next week. But mission also means that the life together of a group of people, whether they are across the world or they are down the street, that collectively together we are on a mission that we have been saved not for ourselves, but to display Jesus to an onlooking world. A few months ago, uh, the staff, we read this book by a pastor we highly respect in New York City, Tim Keller. I know you've probably heard me mention him numerous times, and he wrote a book called Center Church. And in this book, he is referencing another book written by an author named Michael Green, who was looking at the way the church grew in the early centuries, and this author Michael Green says that the explosive growth of Christianity was in reality accomplished by means of informal missionaries, that is, Christian laypeople, not trained preachers and evangelists. They carried on the mission of the church not through formal preaching, but informal conversation in homes and in shops, on walks, and around the market stalls. And that's the point that I'm trying to commend to us today, that we, as God's people, saved by Jesus, now put together in a community by the way we live together and treat one another, and by the way we interact with an onlooking world, are called and privileged to be on a mission for Jesus. And he will use our life and our conversation and the way we go about being a Christian in a cynical, sarcastic, broken, and dark world to be a means of grace to draw people to himself. Just this week, I was reading the uh, conversion account of John Bunyan. John Bunyan was a Puritan who lived in the 1600s in England. And he wrote many books, many works, but probably the most famous book of all other than the Bible. He wrote a book called Puritan's Progress. And um, it is, I think, the second most selling book other than the Bible in the history of the world. He wrote it in the late 1600s. Wonderful book. We sell it in the Resource Center. If you haven't read it, I'd really encourage you to read it. It's a wonderful allegory of the Christian life. But he wrote this beautiful autobiography about his conversion 
And the title of it is, I love Puritan titles. The title of this is Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners or A Brief and Faithful Relation of the Exceeding Mercy of God in Christ to His Poor Servant, John Bunyan. I just love Puritan titles. Awesome. But he wrote about how as the Lord was drawing him to faith in Christ over a series of events over a long period of time, that he happened upon these poor women who were just doing their work in the market and that him eavesdropping their conversation became a wonderful tool of God's grace to convert him. Listen to his account. It's a little long, but I want you to, I want you to get the flavor of how regular, ordinary people can be used by God as they live in life and culture. But upon a day, Bunyan writes, the good providence of God did cast me to Bedford and in one of the streets of that town. I came where there were three or four poor women sitting at a door in the sun and talking about the things of God. And being now willing to hear them discourse, I drew near to hear what they had said. I heard them, but I understood not, for they were far above out of my reach. For their talk was about a new birth, the work of God on their hearts, also how they were convinced of their miserable state by nature. They talked how God had visited their souls with his love in the Lord Jesus, and with what words and promises they had been refreshed and comforted and supported against the temptations of the devil. And methought, They spake as if joy did make them speak. They spake with such pleasantness of scripture language and with such appearance of grace and all they said that they were to me as if they had found a new world. At this I felt my own heart began to shake as mistrusting my own condition to be not. For I saw that in all my thoughts about religion and salvation, the new birth did never enter my mind. Neither knew I the comfort of the word and promise, nor the deceitfulness and treachery of my own wicked heart. Thus, therefore, when I I had heard and considered what they said, I left them and went about my employment again. But their talk and discourse went with me, for I was greatly affected with their words, both because by them I was convinced that I wanted the true tokens of a true godly man, and also because by them I was convinced of the happy and blessed condition of him that was such a one. And we could go on reading, and it would take too much time, where Bunyan accounts where God used their gospel, Christ-saturated conversation to be the very means of tipping grace to cause him to trust in Christ. And then through Bunyan's life, all of these wonderful works of literature, and he became one of the great preachers of England, where the great Puritan John Owen, who was the personal minister of the king, used to go to hear Bunyan preach, and Bunyan was a blue-collar a tinkerer, a guy who would repair pots and pans. And this learned John Owen, who is the personal pastor of the king, the king asked him someday, he said, John, why do you go hear that little poor guy, John Bunyan, preach? And John Owen, this great brilliant mind of the church, said, oh, if I could but preach like Bunyan, I would give up all the knowledge of all my books. 
And so God used the conversation of these three or four poor women as they were just doing their regular day. Imagine if these three women would have been complaining about the price of eggs or bad-mouthing their husbands. Or imagine if it was three men and they were consumed solely with college football. I don't think they played college football in the 1600s, but whatever they did. They were just sort of consumed with, you know, just inconsequential stuff. I'm not saying we don't have conversations along those lines. But I'm trying to impress on us that this regular conversation of these three women who weren't particularly gifted necessarily that we know of in any way, who are these silent, anonymous heroes of the faith who were so saturated with Jesus in their lives that the eavesdropping of their conversation at Panera Bread in England became a display of the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world, one of whom became one of the great heroes of the Christian church. So here are just a few thoughts about characteristics of living on mission for Jesus very quickly, and then we'll be done. And these points we, I get almost directly from Keller's book, Center Church. These are his thoughts that I'm adapting for us is that characteristics of living on mission for Jesus is a church that has a distinct way of life. In Acts 2, we read how they cared for one another. They prioritized one another. They knew each other. Do you know the people that are in this room? Is this your home church? Does anybody know you? Do they know where you live? Do they know your marriage? Do they know your children? This is a safe place, I hope for you to be known, for you to be exposed. A gospel-centered, missional church is one where it's okay to not be okay, where it's okay to have problems. And the distinction about us is, is not that we don't have problems, not that we're all wonderful people who have it figured out because we don't, but that we are taking God's side against our sin. And that we're looking at each other through lens of gospel-saturated grace, not self-righteous condemnation. Of course, this doesn't mean we're perfect. It means that we're taking God's side against our sin. And friends, I want to impress upon you that even the way we take life together as a local church, even the way we take sin seriously, can be used as a witness to an onlooking world. That's one of the reasons why I think church membership is so important because it is, although we don't find those words necessarily clearly in the New Testament, I think it's implied throughout the New Testament that when we covenant together with a group of people who we give permission to and authority to to have some responsibility for us. And so when you put your name on a list and you go through a membership process, it does a couple things. It makes you accountable. And if you're no longer there or if you're in some you know, unrepentant sin. Now that group of people is now responsible to call you graciously back to the Lord so that we would, by the way we live, turn from idols. What is said about Crosspoint? Is what's said about us that, you know, we're just not like other churches? 
or that we've got this or that. No, I, I pray that what is said about us collectively as a group of people is what was said about the Thessalonians, you know? That the thing about those people is that, you know, they're, they're distinct. They, they turn from the brokenness of this world. They're people that aren't caught up in stepping over each other to get up the corporate ladder. They, like they, they're consumed with loving each other and turning from idols. A distinct way of life. Another characteristic, I said I'd go fast. I'll speed it up. A second characteristic that, of, of, a, of a group of people living on mission for Jesus is that their, their efforts to display Jesus are organic, not just organizational. They're not waiting on specific events. It happens spontaneously outside of the church's organized programs. And that, that doesn't mean that we don't necessarily do specific things at times, and that we don't use formal programs to, to be a witness to an onlooking world, but that the regular rhythm of our life together and how we gather together in fact, I think one of the most evangelistic things that the average Christian can do that's part of Crosspoint is to get into relationship with people and just invite them to church. And do you notice that one of the things that we try and do here when we gather together is be very intentional and be very passionate and be very clear and be very deep scripturally, but we also want to be winsome and explanatory. And so we think that we don't have to make a decision that either we have to go deep and, and unbelievers can't, can't really you know, get it, or we have to you know, dumb everything down to where we're just so sensitive to people who haven't been raised in the church. I don't think, I think that's a false dichotomy. Think of it this way. Think about the best way to encourage somebody about the institution of marriage is to sort of keep your spouse at an arm's length and talk about all the benefits of how being married, you know, know, when you get married, you you can file taxes mutually and it's, you know, beneficial and and all sorts of this stuff. And, you know, I mean, you get to help each other and, you know, she takes your, you know, she can cook occasionally and you mow the yard and there's lots of pragmatic benefits to being married. This is seven ways to how being married will help you uh, optimize your life. And I think that's what people that are kind of caught up in the seeker-sensitive movement, that's the great error that they make, is they boil the Christian life down to how it makes things work better. I think that's a huge mistake. I think that the best way to invite unbelievers into our community so that they understand the gospel is to be so passionately in love with Jesus that they are drawn. They're not going to understand it all the time. It's because they're sinners. Their minds are dead. They need Jesus to bring their minds to life so that they can hear and to be so passionate about who Jesus is that by the very way that we gather together and the intensity with which we take God's side against our sin and dig into the depths of the Bible becomes a strange aroma. And those whom God is saving, he uses it to light a fire in their hearts so that they will love the Jesus that we worship. And I, I think that, that one of the most evangelistic things that the average person in Crosspoint can do is just get into relationship and invite people. In fact, I, cut, I brought a couple of them. I know I said I'd go quicker. I'm going to bring this to them. All right, all right, you get my point. These little invite cards that we have out on the thing. A couple of weeks ago, I was at lunch with David Baum. And the waiter was talking, the waitress was talking to us, doing all this kind of stuff, and she came up, and in the middle of the deal, she was kind of all over the map, and I could just tell that Baum was just on the edge of his seat to try and, you know, just invite this young lady to church. And, and she said, and this was so cheesy, but so beautiful, she said uh, something Dave was talking to me. She said, oh, I like your beard. She was talking to me. And Bominator, without missing a beat, says, well, you know what? There's a way you can see that beard for an hour every Sunday. <laughs> 
And he pulls out his wallet and bam, he hands her one of these things and launches into a discussion about the church and faith. Come to find out she went to another church, but we don't know if she's really there or not. That might have just been her excuse, but who knows? A seed might have been planted in her to come. Is using the pastor's beard a cheesy way to invite people to church? Yes. But was it beautiful? Was it organic? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was so beautiful. And it doesn't take like any, you know, superstar, whatever. It's just regular people being organic. Okay, next one. It's relational, which bleeds into what I just talked about. It's done through the context of informal personal relationships. People often come to Christ through a thousand mini decisions that lead up to the one big decision to turn from sin and idols and trust in Christ. And they often are shepherded, are ushered along as they're in a relationship with Christians who have already made that big decision and they begin to see the validity and the distinct way of life that the God that they proclaim actually has seized their hearts. And the gospel that they are commanded to believe becomes more believable as it is embodied in a life that they're next to. And friends, that has far more impact, I think, over the course of time than any one hit sermon or some great gifted preacher. That's just a lot of times the tipping point. But the relationship of regular people caring to engage in conversation with unbelieving friends and maybe eventually invite them to church or to their home group. God uses in miraculous ways. Fourth, a characteristic of living on mission is that a bunch of Christians are deploying the word. They're word deploying. What does that mean? It means that all of these Christians who are taking God's side against their sin are now desiring to know the Bible better, to know the gospel better. That's why we preach out of the scriptures every Sunday. That's why we focus our, our learning as a church not on how you can work out life better but on how glorious God is because we feel that as we become more consumed and more understanding of who God is and the nature of God and the beauty of the gospel as it burns more deeply and brightly and consumes us more then we will be more infected with that beautiful virus that kills and gives life and then we now are equipped all five, six, how many or hundred of us are now deployed throughout the week into cubicles and platoons and other places and living rooms and all sorts of places that we could never go corporately in our worship service and we deploy a biblical understanding of the words of life and Christians are carriers into dark corners and crevices of our cities and town and they are carriers of the gospel virus that infects people and kills them and brings them back to life. To do this, to be a word-deploying people, we need to know our Bible. We need to be people that are saturated with the text, and that's why we go through books of the Bible here. Much more I could say about that. But finally, and fifthly, is fifthly a word? That's the second Sunday I've used it. Is fifthly a word? You guys know what I mean when I say fifthly, right? Okay, the fifth point. It's active and not passive. By that I mean that each person assumes a personal responsibility 
for being a producer rather than just a consumer of gospel ministry. It comes down to this. Part of believing the gospel is believing not just the personal benefits, but the eternal realities. Do we really believe that what the Bible says about eternity is true? Or have we bought into kind of this very watered down, very non-biblical, basically false, prevalent American gospel that kind of presents Jesus' as life 2.0? It's been rough for you. Add Jesus and things will go better. This is the way to a happier marriage or to a more fulfilling career, or to whatever. That's looking at Jesus like another iOS upgrade. He doesn't come to be another iOS operating system. He comes to rescue, to save, to renew, to redeem, to restore, to bring you back to life. And to not be in Christ is to remain in your sin and to, if you die outside of Christ, to be eternally separated from him forever. And this should produce in us this holy angst for a city, for a culture, for friends, for family members who do not know Jesus. And it should produce in us this holy discontent with the way things are and a passion, an active passion to push through anxiety, to push through laziness, to push through fear, so that we become carriers of the gospel and collectively are, like Paul commends the Corinthians, an aroma of Christ to an onlooking world. Oh, there's a thousand things we could do to apply that, but I'm going to trust the Holy Spirit to make application. Oh, that we would be a church that doesn't just love the gospel, And love each other, but loves the world, and is an aroma of Christ to it. Lord, as we come now to respond to your word, I think the first order of business for for me, anyway, is to repent. Lord, forgive me for not loving unbelievers more. Forgive me for turning the beautiful news of life in Christ upside down and oftentimes subconsciously just kind of letting it sort of sink in on me for my comfort and my security eternally or whatever and not having it push me. Lord, give me a greater heart for all the nations of the world. Give me a greater heart for every ethnic group. Give me a greater heart for the people in this city. Give me a greater heart and passion and resolve to fight my sin so that I would be a a more clear picture of Christ. And Lord, do that for all of us, I pray, that are trusting in Christ. And for any person in this room who came in here not believing in Jesus, maybe they were 
aware of that and they're just here investigating Christianity or maybe they thought they were Christians but never truly have trusted in Christ. Maybe they've just trusted in heritage or self-righteousness and they've just slapped a Christian label over it and they realize now by your kindness, by your Holy Spirit that they are not trusting in the true Christ of scriptures, the true gospel. But for those folks, would you give them the very thing that you require of them? I'm not asking them to gin up strength or willpower. I'm asking them, and I'm praying that you would give them the gifts of repentance and faith so that they can turn away from idols, turn away from self, and turn in faith to Jesus. And friend, if that's you right now, you don't need to do anything except look to Christ which is to simultaneously look away from yourself, to believe that you're a sinner, that you have no hope, that you're a rebel against God. You don't need help. You need resuscitation. You need to be brought back to life. And you can't do that. Dead people can't save themselves. And if you sense that that's the case, I think that's very much evidence that God is giving you faith so that you will look away from trusting in your own self or coveting some broken counterfeit pleasure or sin and that you will look to Jesus who lived the life that you could not live and did not live and have not lived and then laid down that perfect obedient life on the cross where he absorbed God's wrath satisfied God's holiness on behalf of all those that would ever turn and trust. And then he rose again in victory over sin and death and the grave and now commands you. And now, I believe, is bringing you back to life. What you need to do now is not do anything but to look away from yourself and exercise the faith that God is giving you even now in Christ. Do that even now, friend. Look to Jesus and say, You are my only hope. Forgive me of my sin. Make me new. Accept me because of your work, not mine. I trust you, Jesus. Lord, would you do that? Would you give that heart? Would you give that faith to anybody in this room who's never turned and trusted in Jesus? And Lord, would you make us a people radically committed to living a life together as a local congregation that displays the surpassing worth of Jesus. I pray these things for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name.